spirituality, I would say, is it's essentially the awareness of the omnipresence of an energy that is both within you and without you, and that is essentially graceful, loving, aware, present, and that you can you can learn how to tune into, so that when you're down and out, so to speak, when when things you know feel difficult, you can broaden your awareness a little bit and recognize that you are being actually held and embraced by something that's invisible, but it's deeply benign. You're listening to The Yoga Room with Mark Stevens, a place for exploring evocative and provocative ideas and conversations about yoga, life, myth, science, and making the world a better place for all. Despite a teacher's best efforts to teach safe yoga practices, Accidents can happen due to a variety of unpredictable circumstances, such as an injury during practice or someone tripping on a mat and falling. B-Yogi Insurance is the number one rated yoga insurance provider in the U.S. and covers teachers wherever they teach, in studios, outside, streaming live, and even on pre-recorded video classes. B-Yogi covers over 60 styles of yoga, from acro yoga to vinyasa to stand-up paddle yoga, and you can combine other modalities, such as massage and pilates, into one affordable policy. In addition to liability insurance with B-Yogi, you get a free website, stolen equipment coverage, identity theft protection, and tons of discounts on yoga equipment, retreats, software, classes, and more. B-Yogi offers policies for part-time or full-time teachers, and has a discounted rate for students still in teacher training. To save $15 off your new BYOGI insurance policy, visit BYOGI.com slash yoga room or use the code yoga room at checkout. Once again, visit BYOGI.com slash yoga room or use code yoga room at checkout to save $15 on your policy. And you can also find the link to BYOGI in the show notes for this episode. Welcome to the Yoga Room Podcast. This is Mark Stevens, your host. Uh, my guest today is Sally Kempton, and I'll get further with an introduction of her uh, in just a moment. But first, I just want to give a little bit of a, a background. And, and well, to start with, just to suggest that we live in this world with so many cross-cutting currents. It's a diverse world of ideas and experiences and practices, a world in which there's vast beauty and love and possibility, and yet also profound conflict and confusion and suffering. It's a world in which many people find in yoga many different things. And I think for most, what keeps them coming back to the practice is a sense and experience that it makes their life better and the world better as well, perhaps one precious breath at a time. And at the same time, I'll suggest that while for many people, yoga is about physical fitness, for others, it's about finding healthy social connection, yet others, a way of simply letting go of stress. And for many others, it's either always has been about or comes to be through doing it about something far deeper, about something more profound, more deeply personal, perhaps transpersonal, transformational, about awakening awareness in the greater realm of it all, in the beauty, the love, the wisdom of existence, being in what some would only be able to describe as a spiritual life. 
In introducing my guest in this episode, Sally Kempton, we'll go back to the 1960s, not to thoroughly explore the 1960s, but which I'll also suggest, though, that the 1960s is, is a sort of this cultural moment that extends well into the 1970s, perhaps even today. And so, indeed, it is in the early 1970s, Sally Kempton, in her early 20s, uh, living in New York City amidst a flourishing career as a New York journalist. She's writing for Esquire, for the New York Times, for New York Magazine, for the Village Voice. And she's an early voice there in second wave feminism, the rise of the early second wave feminist movement. But something happened. Something happened fully human with all the sorts of experiences that human beings have. Something happened in which she woke up to a profound sense of love of profound love for about 24 hours that would set her on a course that would change the course of the rest of her life. After exploring for a couple of years in a variety of ways what this meant, what it might have been, how she might have it again, she went. She met Swami Muktananda, an enlightened Siddha master who became her guru and with whom she studied and traveled from 1974 until his passing in 1984. Sally edited many of his books, received intensive training in Vedanta and the ancient texts in Vedanta and yoga and the non-dual tantric tradition of Kashmir Shaivism, and she taught courses all around the world. In 1982, Muktananda initiated Sally into the traditional Saraswati order of Indian swamis or monks, giving her the name Swami Durgananda, a name that is very interesting to explore, that is Durga as well as Durgananda. Um, in the next 20 years, Sally was a teacher in the Siddha Yoga Meditation, um, and she also created workshops and trainings and courses in meditation and spiritual wisdom. She was the editor of the spiritual magazine Darshan, and she wrote extensively on all aspects of spiritual life. In 2002, Sally was inspired to put aside her monastic identity, and she started teaching more widely, more broadly in the world to help people deal with the challenges of life in the 21st century. Sally's current work interprets the wisdom of the Tantras, key texts and teachings spanning a vast, vast period of time in, in human history, while really concentrated heavily there in the medieval to early modern periods and since then, uh, really for contemporary mature aspirants tapping into depth psychology, into neuroscience, the insights of integral philosopher Ken Wilbur, and her own daily practice. Sally is the author of Meditation for the Love of It, She's also the author of Awakening Shakti, The Transformative Power of the Goddesses in Yoga. Her audiobook, Doorways to the Infinite, The Art and Practice of Tantric Meditation. Uh, she also currently teaches meditation as a process for inner exploration, for learning to integrate heart, mind, and body so we can experience our natural state of wisdom and love. Um, I wish to share a brief anecdote before saying hello to Sally. And that is that in 2005, I was driving down to Esalen Institute in Big Sur from my home here in Santa Cruz, um, producing the video for Shiva Ray in which she would interview Sally and the French tantric Daniel Odier. And so I'm running a little bit late and I'm on the road. And it's a very curvy road along the coast. And there's this little Toyota Prius in front of me going, well, rather slow. And well, I think I honked my horn more than a few times and was a little bit frustrated and, and stressed out more and more. And as of course we approached Esalen, this car pulled in right ahead of me. I'm thinking to myself, oh gosh, I just hope that's not Sally Kempton. <laughs> and so 
stepping out uh, in the parking lot, um, I walked over to apologize to this person and introduce myself, and it was Sally Kempton. And she, and I, as I began to explain, she says, "Oh, I wasn't aware that you were there. I think that she was either focused on the on the road, chanting, listening to chants, or perhaps doing something else. I don't really know, but thus began a connection." Uh, today, for me, a precious friendship, which I share in full disclosure, that is that while my guest, Sally, is far more than that uh, in my life today, um, and even as I tune into her in the variety of ways that I can to gather what wisdom that I might. Uh, Sally, welcome to the Yoga Room uh, podcast, and thank you so much for for uh, being with me here today. Mark, thank you so much, and thank you for that beautiful introduction. Of course. Um, well, it's it's a, a, just a bit of the introduction. Of course, there's far more to anyone's anyone's life, and um, you know the variety of ways that before I met you that you had crossed my horizons a bit, including the wisdom column in Yoga Journal. Frankly, I had read a number of those um, those columns that you had written there that just so I felt I find still translated what for many are obtuse texts or, or abstract texts or inaccessible texts and sometimes esoteric weird practices into just really practical kernels of wisdom like you're dealing with this you're dealing with that consider doing this and consider doing that and just, that's fascinating to me that that one can make those translations like that yeah yeah i i kind of believe i i have come to believe that there's several kinds of spiritual teachers, obviously. There are those whom you go to for, you know, the pure transmission of the inner truth. And there are those who you go to for a transmission that, that you actually can use when you're having a fight with your boyfriend or, you know, when you're at a crisis in work. And um, I try to be both. But the, th the thing that I, I think is utterly necessary for yoga to to actually land in a person's life is it just has to be applicable to daily life otherwise you keep it on the mat you know you do it at retreats and it doesn't it doesn't really tra transform you so so yeah i think both of us are very interested in yoga as a transformative practice for people whether they're you know doing very intense household career life or you know something something more traditionally uh monastic nonetheless it's all about how you apply it indeed yeah. and how we apply it it would seem to me my experience also has to do with how we receive it if you will how we come to those those teachings and there are just so many different ways that they are are shared yeah. um and sometimes, especially when one can make practical, concrete examples about things in life, draw out stories that are relatable, it seems we can more tap into them. Um, I'm curious, just for you, in your sense of making the teachings so, somewhat more relatable, is that something that you found was natural for you from the very, very beginning? Or was it something that grew in certain ways as you developed your own practice? Well, you know, I, I was a journalist. And I come from a family of journalists. So there's a kind of natural tendency to, you know, to look at everything I do culturally, sociologically, and psychologically. And so, yeah, it was natural. Um, it's still natural. And, uh, you know, and at the same time, as I, as I get older, um, 
as I get more internal. The, uh, one of the things I've noticed is that I'm more and more interested actually in the esoteric inner practice, hmm. you know, as, as opposed to how do we apply this. But I, you know, I think for most of my life or as a yogi, I, you know, I, my, main, my main interest has been on and how do you make this work for people? How do you make people's lives better with this knowledge? Bec and I would say for myself, um, I, re I recently read a book, which I think I was sharing it with you the last time we talked. It's a book by a, a clinical psychologist named Lisa Miller, who's a, mm -hmm. she teaches at, I believe, Yale. And um, Yale or Harvard, one of those high prestige Ivy League schools. Mm -hmm. And she's done a long-term longitudinal studies about the effect of spirituality on people with a tendency to depression. And what she came up with is that, you know, depression is caused by genetic factors, situational factors, various other factors, but people who have a genetic predispos predisposition towards depression tend to fall victim to it. And the only exception that she found in this general study was people who had a strong sense of spirituality. So that, in other words, spirituality protects against depression. And I suspect, you know, in my own experience, against other forms of, you know, unhappiness and dysfunction, uh, including anxiety, which, you know, some people say is just the opposite of depression. So when I first became interested in spiritual life, um, part of my you know, let's say my, my genetic makeup was a, a tendency towards depression, which runs in my family. And I just assumed that this was what life was like, and this is how you're, you know, this is, this is how it was going to roll for me. And I, I, you know, I managed to work and have friendships and wasn't crippling depression. Uh, but the thing I noticed after I started having an experience of, I'm going to call it spirit, and I'm going to say kind of specifically what I'm talking about, uh, I, I discovered that I, I didn't get depressed. I mean, I, I, I'm not that, you know, they're not bad moments in life, 45, 50 years later. But, I, you know, that, that tendency is no longer with me. I've noticed it for years. And, you know, and I've noticed it with other people I know who are in long-term serious spiritual practice. Uh, I, uh, I was involved in a tradition Siddha Yoga, which was very focused on spiritual experience. You know, so my, my guru had glamorous spiritual experiences, visionary experiences, visions of deities and, you know, great beings and travels to other worlds. And, you know, even though he always said this is not the purpose of spirituality, everyone in his community essentially in their heart of hearts believed it was. Uh, and I, I remember listening to a friend of mine who had been with him for 10 years She'd never had a single glamorous spiritual experience. Uh, and she, she was driving somewhere, asking herself why this was the case. And suddenly she had a vision of how her days were, how she felt before she began meditating. And she realized that she had lived in this kind of gray, depressed world. And that through the practice and through her association with the teacher who you know, transmitted pretty loving states. Um, she didn't have that feeling anymore. Her, her, her realm was lit. It was bright. 
And when I heard her tell that story, I realized this is also my case, and that that, that really is the bottom line to spirituality. If it, if, it makes your, if it doesn't make your life feel brighter, feel more beautiful in general, then it's, you know, I'm not going to say you're not doing it right, but it's not fulfilling its true purpose, which is not about the visionary experiences, though we love them when they come. It's not about the insights. It's about the overall transformation in the way you see the world and the way you live your life. I love this, that in yeah. part because well, we hear about a spiritual practice or matters of spirit. There are very, very different ideas out there. For some, the idea of spirituality or spirit involves a moral code, following certain types of ethics, that it's somehow reflecting some kind of a social tradition or a consensus about what's really important to us um, in the world. Sometimes we hear that it's it's a it's a matter of, of 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 the psyche of the psychic of having a sense of the way that things are, and I but if that's I don't but we can't sort of rest on that to sort of define what does it mean to have spirituality in one's life. In that, many people can have these qualities of awareness without necessarily I would suggest having having a spiritual life. Well, some would say, well, it's really about a, tra- a tradition, a religion, uh, or it's about a particular place, or it's about having some um, particular ritual that one follows in a consistent way that, that gives one a sense of that meaning, that wholeness in their lives. What I'm hearing you saying right now is something different, that it's something that at a very deeply personal, practical level resonates, that there's something in there that is making sense of one's world in a way that, and I, if I can begin the key term, feel that it feels brighter, that it feels brighter so i'm curious about how that for you being in a particular tradition with siddha yoga came alive came awake to you even more how that brightness most most illuminated to you in those practices there well yeah i want to answer that question and i'd like to back up for a minute and get please to the you know get more deeply into this definition of spir- spirituality. Yes. Um, because as we know, it's very common these days to, to, for people to say I'm spiritual but not religious. So in other words, to make a distinction between a recognition of the presence of spirit and the whole panoply of dogma, practices, traditions that we associate with religion. And um, I would say I'm both. So you know, I I I really do believe that religion and moral codes and, you know, having a place you can go and meet other like-minded people and, you know, the, 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 certainly the social side of religion, but also the thing that religion does for those who believe a particular religious dogma of making sense of the world, which I think we all deeply need to make sense of the world in a positive way and um, not all religious traditions all the time, but you know, certainly, uh, certainly religious traditions have served that function for people, so God bless them. Spirituality, I would say, is it's essentially the awareness of the omnipresence of an energy that is both within you and without you, and that is essentially graceful, loving, aware, present, and that you can you can learn how to tune into so that when you're down and out, so to speak, when 
when things you know feel difficult, you can broaden your awareness a little bit and recognize that you are being actually held and embraced by something that's invisible but is deeply benign. And um, so that is what I th- mean by spirit. And it's you know it's often often people who who aren't meditators who or who aren't you know philosophically spiritual will have experiences of synchronicity for instance you know simple experiences like the phone rings and you know it's your cousin Jill and you pick up the phone and it's your cousin Jill and you start to realize oh there are connections in the universe that are not obvious you know and so it's like those very subtle things that almost all of us experience at some time or another that you know not everyone's attuned to that but once you start to recognize that that spirit is always available and that spirit is helpful you know and I, I think that's you know that's the main thing so many of the religious traditions are about laws and if you do it wrong you're screwed you know and you know and and we, nobody seems to i mean i'd say modern people don't believe in hellfire anymore but we sure do believe in the negative effects of karma which most of us in the you know new age adjacent world use the word karma you know instead of sin so we believe in sin and punishment. The religions believe in sin and punishment in one way or another. Spirit does not do sin and punishment. You know, spirit does love, support, and learning. You know, and obviously sometimes learning is, you know, involves something that feels a lot like punishment. But the truth is if you get the presence of spirit, then on some level you learn more and more deeply everything's okay. Everything's, and it's very simple, you know, it's like, it's like, it, it, it's not because you believe that there is a God who's taking care of you. It's because you feel the benignness of the atmosphere. So does that make sense? It makes entire sense to me. Yeah. What, or my mind is going a bit is towards how in yoga, there are these sort of various prisms. We might even call them traditions, um, lineages. Styles, brands, it's gotten really pretty, pretty right. elaborate. Yes, uh, here we are. One might choose, one might find where they sense the friendliness, the affinity, the natural connection uh, with a certain way, uh, a certain prism through which they look or certain sensibilities that they might have in appreciating, well, how to come to that simple, beautiful, as you describe, benign sense of, of it. And of it, of it working in one's life, of one's life becoming brighter, lighter, better, more filled with love and wisdom, more easily coming to resolution of problems and challenges in life, of navigating the, the world as it is. It, in some traditions, certainly, traditionally, historically, we see the idea of to really get at these practices, you really, really to do it well, you need to separate yourself from society. You know, go to a cave, go to an ashram, uh, develop, adopt a lifestyle that's also about denying many aspects of what might otherwise be seen as natural human impulse, desires of a, of a vast array. Um, the, the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, today the most oft-cited work of yoga philosophy, let's say in yoga teacher training programs, at least globally, despite it. I know it had a it, some it got quite a ride in the uh, first part of the first millennium, shortly after it was penned, probably in the 
300s or so of the Common Era. Got a, little, a bit of a ride in the 1100s, but it largely disappears until Madame Lavatsky and Vivekananda and a few others, and then later Krishnamacharya tremendously elevate this text. And in this text, we come to certain kinds of ideas like, I'm going to go with this one right now, Pratyahara, to relieve your senses of your external distractions. Um, and also certain other sort of moral codes drawn largely from Buddhist literature, a lot of them drawn or equally right. found in Buddhist literature, certainly. Um, but certain sensibilities about how to practice, including that one of Pratyahara, to relieve your senses of your external distractions, to essentially sort of, one could say, suspend the cognitive apparatus, not to avail your senses of all they might receive I'm trying to paint the picture of a prism or two here, contrasting prisms. And right. there's this prism in which sensation, all of what it might be, we just try to let it be over there and not avail ourselves of all the various, we might call them vibrations of experience, the intensities of experience that might come to us. And then I hear along the way somewhere this other idea. Well, interesting. You might explore how it's precisely in the most intense vibrations of life, good, bad, or otherwise, it's in those vibrations that we might most come to a sense of something like amazing, whether that's a sense of like, oh my God, whether it's like seeing the your once newborn child for the first time, being at the end of one's rope and about to drop off, whether it's matters of love or fear or disgust or whatever it is, that's in those intensities that the vibrations, some might say the, the Shakti, is most vibrating that we can most tap into something that not pratyahara, but we might say apratyahara, not pra to open our senses to it all, to be in it all. So I'm nudging us a little bit here to see if yeah, we can start to talk a little bit about, you, you ended up at some point quite young choosing a path that was a path that, that involves Kashmir, a particular approach in, in Tantra, not a particular approach in one of the vast, vast array of paths within what we might call more traditional or classical yoga. I'm fascinated by both that choice, but even more so that experience and what, how you've distilled from all of this, these kinds of qualities and sensibilities that you're sharing now about tapping into spirit and living a spiritual life today. Well, I, I should say that, that I started off, um, uh, let's see, how can I say this? There were several stages along the way for me. And in the most crucial one, uh, when, I just, when I met my teacher, my guru, and decided I was going to be his disciple and I was going to give myself full time to that, uh, there was very much a moment when I realized that I was going to make a commitment and that this commitment would mean I didn't have a career as I had known it. I didn't have a boyfriend or a husband because that was part of uh, the you know, kind of the ethic of, of the tradition I was in. Not that there are not many, many married and sexually active people in that lineage, but... And you had I, had boyfriends to this and point. And I had had boyfriends. I'd been married. I had a very yes. intense worldly life until age 30, which is when I met my teacher. I was pretty old, and I had not, I had not been sitting around, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd been, I'd had, um, I'd had a very full life. And I had discovered a few things about myself. One of the things I had discovered is that um, my, my relationships with men, which were pretty much paramount for me in my early life, more important than anything else, that, that I when I was putting another, when I was putting a romantic relationship in the forefront of my life, 
it distracted me from everything else. You know, I, did, you know I, I couldn't really get into my work. I couldn't really get into my spiritual life. Everything was about that relationship and the ups and downs of it. And so I made a decision, okay, I'm not doing relationships for now. I'm going to be, uh, I'm, I'm going to be celibate and I'm not going to have a lover. So that was a huge decision. I mean, that was, that was, pro- that was one of the most life-changing decisions it's interesting, just not to interrupt, to interject just very briefly, yeah. that how coming out of this, you have, in, from all I've gathered, deep insight into relationship issues that yeah. you've been able to help I people do. understand. So we'll come back around to that, but please, yes. please, please continue. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, and I, and I, by the way, this decision was about my own issues. It wasn't about. It was not undertaken as a general rule. But it's also true that my guru was a swami. He was a sannyasin. He was a monk. And he, he made it very clear that he believed that the optimum life stance for a person who wanted liberation, enlightenment, which I believed at the time was my goal, um, actually needed, needed to be full on. So he, it, in ter- with his close disciples, he would often discourage most people from being in romantic relationships. So Brahmacharyan. Yeah, it was a Brahmacharya. Yeah, it was a Brahmacharyan tradition. Um, so, and I, I just, you know, because my goal was to be accepted as a serious disciple and to follow the path that he showed, uh, I didn't question this. Um, and I certainly had moments, you know, every now and then in those early years I would fall in love with somebody. And, and it, it it always felt as though the universe wouldn't let it happen. Because mm-hmm. I'll, I'll be really s- straight with you, I was pretty popular as a young woman. I mean, mm-hmm. guys usually liked me. So to, to have, a, to have you know, someone I was interested in not interested in me was uh, unusual. You know? mm-hmm. and, and it felt like a kind of synchronicity, like the universe wasn't going to let me do this. Uh, so, so that... So that was um, that was a, ma- a very major decision, and I was in that I was in that community for thirty years. Um, I had been there, you know. Swami Muktananda gave me initiation as a Swami. Uh, I think I'd been with him seven or eight years. It was right before he he left his body, before he took samadhi, and um, I was very ambivalent about being a monk. Not so much because of the celibacy issue, which I had, you know, I had, um, I had internalized, but because I didn't want to wear a uniform and be part of an organization, because it, you know, because in my heart of hearts I'm an extremely bohemian person, and and it just felt like it was going to be um, restrictive in ways that were were not comfortable for me, so I resisted it a lot. I ended up doing it, and. Um, and I'm very glad I did because there was a, you know, living that discipline and living that life where you're, you're, you know, you have to be an example to other people. <laughs> and therefore, you're quite rigorous with yourself in ways that you wouldn't necessarily be if that wasn't the case. So it was an enormously important training. And, and then there, there's just got to be a point, and I think this happens, hopefully it happens to everybody who does the classical path. At a certain point, you realize that you're suppressing feelings, both you know, both pleasurable feelings and painful feelings, 
and that because you're suppressing emotions, because you're suppressing desires, uh, some of which are unhealthy, but some of which are certainly healthy, that you're truncating your ability to to really enter into the heart of life. So, and it, and that was the point in which my my internal compass for what was truly spiritually healthy kind of switched from the classical yoga pratyahara approach, which I'm all, I mean, you know, I think pratyahara is a fantastic practice, especially when yes. you're sitting for meditation. Yes. But as a life practice, mm-hmm. it's pretty blinkered. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so, and, and I, you know, my guru was a tantrika, um, but he he came to tantra after, you know, a, pretty much a lifetime. I think he he had been doing spiritual practice for about twenty five years when he met his guru, and you know, and the the tradition that I was trained in is a tradition in which um, you receive a transmission from the teacher, which in in the case of this of Swami Muktananda was pretty dramatic, and which awakens Kundalini, and then your journey is pretty much guided internally by Kundalini. So at a certain point, Kundalini started guiding me towards a more, uh, you know, open-eyed, open senses experience of the world, and I began to realize that my, if I can say this properly that my main experience of joy, of blissfulness, of connection, was with this this pervading energy, which I found everywhere, and which had the the quality of love, which was in other people, which was in the air, which was in the trees. And that, to me, is the ultimate tantric perspective. It's like, okay, this universe is made of shakti, of sacred energy. You can find it anywhere. And uh, and there are certain circumstances in which it's very strong, one of which, of course, is in satsang. But another one of which is in, you were mentioning it earlier, in very intense experiences, you know, experiences of deep sorrow, experiences of deep joy, sexuality, the delight of the delight of delicious food, aesthetic experiences that, you know, in Tantra. The understanding is that behind all of these, um, these let's call them peak experiences or intense experiences, there's a particularly intense charge of shakti, and in intense experience you can you can break through, you can break through the veils, and um, experience the underlying truth. So, uh, so my you know I became a tantrika, <laughs> you know which I guess I. I was by nature, um, but for me, tantra. I, I, what I always say to people is that tantra is the advanced course. In other words, it. I do believe it's very important to practice yogic discipline when you're when you're first stepping onto the path, because first of all, our minds are so crazy and unbridled, and we're so full of delusions, and, for want of a better word, you know, egoistic desires that to some extent you have to tame your mind. You have to learn how to sit. You have to learn how to do pratyahara. Uh, just in order to have this, you know, to have the, the foundation for the deeper truth. So that was the path I followed. It's just how it happened. And part of that, so there's a lot, a lot in there that I'd like to try to explore with you. Yeah. Um, 
including how indeed we might all be uh, naturally um, tantric at the same time um, that that might be far removed from the experience that, that people have, far removed from their demeanor, from their conditions, from their temperament at a certain point in time. And to get to a sense of, by this I mean, by the way, tantric and a tantric worldview and experience of it all is a sense of of wholeness in the world and a sense of our being a part of the whole of it all that right. we but not that all tantra is is non-dual but rather that this is a particular view within tantra that that we are a part of the whole of it all and that as these whole beings that we might avail ourselves of the whole of our experience and not right. deny but tap in to everything that we might allow our senses to experience i very much appreciate in many moments of my life in parts of daily practice relieving my senses of their external distractions. That is, just going inside. In many of the classes that I teach, we might often begin by, I'll suggest, sitting, if we're sitting is, or standing, but usually sitting at the beginning. Uh, and these are asana, largely asana, asana yoga classes, um, asana pranayama, but some meditation classes. Um, starting with your eyes resting lightly closed, everyone, and tuning in inside. A sense of relieving one's senses from their, just tuning in inside. But then, but then, to start, well, no less attuned inside, to become a little by little attuned to it all. Feel the breath, feel the movement of your body, feel the, the, the breeze on your skin, feel your clothing on your skin, feel what's coming to your ear, feel, sense the light through your eye, sense it all. And little by little, breath by breath, to be able to be in that whole of it all um, introduces an entire, it seems to me, um, a completely different sense of, of the beauty of it all. It, it's um, there are a number of again, points of things that you said uh, uh, as you were speaking a moment ago. I want to try to pick back up on one of them is initiation, and um, I recently read uh, the doctoral dissertation of a fellow you had mentioned, Ben Williams, his dissertation on Abhinavagupta uh, and, and this eleventh, tenth, eleventh century tantric uh, master in Kashmir, and the focus is on the ideal guru and and. The way that Abhinavagupta revolutionized initiation, he didn't quite fully democratize it, let's say, but he he changed the rules of it and, and, the, and the mechanisms and and who was who was who was a, a, a potential candidate uh, dramatically. Yeah. Uh, it took it away from this, I say, kind of something of an elite practice, if you will, or, or rather, of transmission among elites to something where. Um, trans and redefine in this redefined indeed the nature of the guru that is to be someone who was not only transmitting I'd say but also tapped into contemporary culture yeah. a, a learned person a musician uh, tuned into politics to what's happening in, on the streets in society the Abhinavagupta the stories I read about it he's not just in Ben's dissertation, but in other places that, you know, he's out and about. He's experiencing the culture of his, of his society, of his community, and bringing this into his practices. Um, that is living in the world. And that to me is quite fascinating. That, that, so I'm interested both in the question of initiation. Right. Who, wh why so chosen? Who's, who, can, who can tap into these practices? Must one be initiated that is or and then and then with that these practices themselves um 
is it is it only done in meditation and chanting? Is it only with the five M's? Is it is it is it you know this or that? And so I want to get get a little bit into just that those sets of questions around initiation and who who can do these practices. Um, yeah. What is the life of a tantric today? Really good question because there's so much. I guess we call it neo tantra. That doesn't have so much to do with the traditional tantra. So can I just say a little bit about the branches of tantra because I think it's helpful Very for much those so, who please. aren't so familiar with it. So, you know, m- most scholarship about tantra on tantra focuses on the practices and tantra is very, very technique oriented. You know, hatha yoga, as you know, is um, generally, you know, we say it's really a- actually comes out of a tantric tradition, which means that this understanding that the body, the human body, is full of power centers. You know, it's full of it's full of capacities that we don't tap into, and they're not just in the brain or, let's say, in the subtle body. They're also in the physical body. So, in other words, your tongue, your you know your your soft palate, um, the area in front of your face, your liver, all of these organs have you know have spiritual capacities, powers that we can tap into. And a lot of tantra, a lot of tantric technique practice is about tuning into these powers. And of course, in the Vibhuti Pada section, the third book of the Yoga Sutra, which is all about yogic powers, the Siddhis, they give you a lot of the techniques for opening up these powers through meditating on the eyes or meditating on the heart. And this is a this is really part of the lore of tantra. It's very much... Um, it's been, a, you know, it's a strong emphasis in the Yoga Tantra. Uh, so that's, let's call that, that's one side of Tantra. And then there's the, uh, you know, there's the, the traditional, actually it was one of Abhinavagupta's practice, the Kaula Tantric tradition, which is where the five M's come in, you know, that in, in the Puritanical Society of India, to understand that everything is consciousness, you would also do transgressive stuff, like having sex with, with what they, what Abhinavagupta would call a low caste woman, um, and we won't get into the sexual politics of that, which is appalling. But nonetheless, that was the practice, or liquor, or you know, different types of intoxicants. So that there's that very intense um, use of transgressive materials, which has bec- has become kind of the, it's the way many people think of tantra. It, you know, tantra is doing all these things that normal people don't do. Uh, and then there's what I would call the tantric attitude, which, which is more where my tradition is from, which is, in other words, you awaken kundalini, you tune into shakti in your body. The shakti in your body shows you the shakti in the world, and you're living in an experience of wholeness. So you know that type of tantra is more of an attitude, and you might be doing... Um, all kinds of ordinary yogic practices with a tantric attitude, which is to say, as you were just saying, opening your senses to, to everything and finding the sacred in everything, even as you're doing, you know, in many cases, fairly technical internal body practices. And I, I, my feeling, and I know that because in the last, you know, 15 or 20 years, I've, I've studied some Tantra other than the Tantra in my tradition. And, and I've come to realize that there's enormous power in some of these 
you know, inner, inner yogic practice, tantric practices. They're quite extraordinary, and they take a lot of work. You know, you need to, you need to be very concentrated. You need to have, you need to really hone your ability uh, to focus in order to do these practices, and they take a while to master. But then there's, you know, then there's the recognition of the sacred energy of cosmos everywhere, and that's something that we can carry with us all the time, no matter what we're doing and no matter how flaky we get. You know, that, that which is what I call spirituality. You know, it's is the, just the, the notion that spirit, shakti, um, eros, if you will, is, is everywhere. So I think that these are like three, three definitions of tantra. Um, you know, the yoga tantra, specifically the Sri Vidya schools of Tantra, which is all about, you know, yantras and practices and pujas and mantras and really complicated, the, you know, the kind of left-handed Tantra, which is also ritualistic, but also very focused on breaking through your, your, moral, and, your moral and intellectual strictures, and then kind of overall wholeness Tantra, which is Kundalini-driven Tantra. Which is much more sahaja, much more um, spontaneous. I hope I, I hope I made those distinctions clear. Um, Very much. I think it's yeah. challenging to make any just to make clear distinctions or yeah. to categories with this. I mean, tantra has long defied uh, scholarly definition. Yes, uh, if we look across India today, even today. Um, Many will, will uh, in terms of religion, Hinduism is the predominant religion. There are many, many other religions: Buddhism and Jainism and Christianity and Islam. As there are other religious expressions across India, much like, uh, say, Christianity in Europe, um, with the rise of Christianity and the fuller development of Christianity, there was an attempt, an interest among the, uh, with the church, let's say, to to make everyone a Christian. Um, and so they sent, you know, monks, priests, monks out into the countryside to help these these uh, people, peasants mostly. Ninety-eight uh, percent of the planet were peasants before the year nineteen hundred. Um, let's say to, to develop you know, to open to Christianity. Well, they were doing all kinds of pra spiritual practices out there in the countryside. All kinds of spiritual practices from one village to the next. It might be different. They might be bound to this or that. And indeed, they came to be defined as as pagan, as paganist, as paganism. Uh, pagan and peasant have the same etymological root. We'll go back to India, and let's say a very similar thing happens with respect to Brahmin elites. Brahmins are elites in terms of the caste system. They're very elite, uh, intellectuals and priests. And what are they attempting to do? But, well, go into the countryside and convince everyone to be, adopt a certain particular religious code and set of practices. And as they go out there, what they encounter, much like Europe's Christian monks encountered, what are still today, a vast array of practices, of rituals, of deities, of ways of relating even to the commonly shared deities. Very, very different ideas about Shiva, Shakti, everything. And so here we find this attempt to sort of, and, and what most defines those practices across rural India, 800 million people, is in some ways Tantra. But again, go from one village to the next and one finds something that's that's really different and so what we also find i think is that just in the same way that we have 
you know, Hinduism attempting to capture this whole array of, of traditions and beliefs, we also find that Tantrism becomes imposed upon a vast array of Asian traditions, even outside um, of India. Um, Gertrude Stein discussing Oakland once said, California city there, there's no there there. And the same might be said, David Gordon White suggests this um, in his anthology on Tantra and practice, that there's no there there. That is, there's this vast, vast diversity that often unrecogni- mutually unrecognizable uh, practices that one would raise their eyebrows at, that is Tantra. And, you know, a lot of this gets filtered to us through the colonial and post, well, the colonial missionaries and administrators show up there in India and they're like in shock at some of the practices, some of the more, you know, weird, esoteric, out there, transgressive practices. And, you know, they're seen, or they, and they, they, of course, highlight those that are most sort of outrageous weird. And, the, and weird and they appear in the newspapers of the day in the west in london in new york and and and, and this and very much these things are said to you know are, are made taboo and the, the, what we see in much of this sort of indian reaction at the time is either to well deny it no we, we aren't doing that and to try to show a more pure approach to spirituality and to religion and to show the the, the the side of Tantra that is shorn of those kinds of transgressive and practices that might involve including sexuality. Um, and so then we get this kind of scholarly practitioner sort of Tantra right-handed that is somewhat shorn of those more trans- transgressive practices and that kind of sits there for a while until we get to the 19, well, Blavatsky has a bit of a role in this and those others in the late 19th century. But let's cer- certainly say that by the time we get to the 1960s, to the new age, let's call it, in the new age, Tantra takes on a whole different kind of meaning. Not that we don't have this earlier, including with people like Theo Spinard in New York in the 1930s, where Tantra becomes reduced to sort of spiritual sex, sacred sex. Right. And right. it really is shorn of its larger spiritual dimension and how it connects to all of what you've been described, it's, it's simplified, it's dumbed down, if you will, to where how we might relate to, to matters of kundalini awakening. And now we have these profiteering purveyors of tantric sex are all over the globe today. You can, you know, most Google searches on something like tantra will bring you right to them. Right. And they're all over the place, teaching you this, that, and the other technique to get right there, which usually involves some kind of sexual relations, rather than... Not, I mean, let alone say the, the five M's, not just that one of sexual relations of Mithuna, but, 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 but something. There's usually some drugs involved also. There's usually some drugs involved. Rather yeah. than this sense, again, going back to Alvanova Gupta just for a moment, that of, of an aesthetics, uh, of, of a sense of, and in that aesthetics of the juice of life, of rasa, um, and, and that this shows up in, in everything. It, it, it's in compassion, it's in courage, it's in, it's in calmness, it's in wonder, it's in love, it's in wrath, it's in disgust, it's in, it's in fear, it's in the intensity of the experiences that, that we can, can come to. Um, I want to encourage my students, Sally, I want to encourage my students, if they're open to it, to open to exploring in their heart all of what they can feel. I, I, I took a meditation workshop with you in like 2009. You came to Santa Cruz and taught a workshop, the studio I was working in at that time, and, and introduced this method of heart-centered meditation that I've played with ever since of, you know, 
take a moment. First, we did some journaling, some self-reflective journaling. You know, what's most intensive for you right now? You might focus on fear or anger or something like that. It could also be something that's really joyful. So something that's really in, in your life in this moment. Now put the paper down. Breathe it into your heart. Visualize it coming into that infinitely spacious. Feel it in the fullness of your heart. And as your breath is flowing out, imagine it since it's fading out behind you like the wake of a boat behind you. But then bring it right back in. And I recall, and I know I'm not characterizing right just how you shared this. I've probably embellished it and shifted it around over the years. Um, but using this, the point being to, to fully feel whatever it is and to go in there as deeply as one wishes to entertain the transformative potential of these practices in beautiful ways, in ways that make our lives better, that make us more capable of loving and being loved and having brightness um, in our lives. Now, I know I've gone on a bit, quite a bit there. Pardon me. Um, I want to do a better job of listening here, not just talking and sharing what I think. Um, and, and, and whatever you say next, I wish also that if you can weave in a little bit, there are different ideas about the source inside, including kind of the mapping source. Some put kundalini in the conda bulb at the base of the spine. Some put the nadis as all emanating out from the heart. Some put other, <laughs> there are different ideas, theories, sort of maps, if you will, of the conduits, uh, the sources, where they are. I'd love to hear more about your sense of that. Where is the kundalini? What, what are we talking about practically when we talk about kundalini and shakti? Okay, and I, I, I want to just come back for a moment to what you were talking about, about the practice of, of letting yourself feel issues and emotions and then bringing them into the heart. Because I, one of the things I discovered in my own sadhana was that the things I was afraid to feel, and we all have them, you know, anger, um, you know, resentment, hurt feelings, etc., etc., the, the, all the old historical issues that, that live in the unconscious and, you know, affect our lives, that I only was able to face them, I mean, really face into them in the, in the way that you're speaking about, when I had an inner connection. And in my case, it was the heart, you know, so that, so that as you cultivate the energy in the heart, which is a benign energy, or the energy in the hara, which many people do this same practice with, you know, from the hara, which is a, which is not so much, it's not so much love rasa as it is stability rasa, but the fact that there is this center where you're you're you know you're you're stationing yourself or the witness for that matter, and then you bring the emotions into that, but th there's a stability in that inner connection, and. To me, that is that really is the secret of dealing with the shadow. Is you know is to it's it's part of what yoga brings to the psychological process, just as the the recognition that we have to deal with our shadow issues is what psychology brings to the yoga practice. <coughs> I just wanted to say that because I think it's it is actually the it's the cutting edge place where you know as as um, modern yogis, postmodern yogis, that's that's part of what we have discovered, you know, is, is the inner, stationing yourself inwardly and then letting all the other stuff be present because you're, you have this place you're living which is, which is not going to be affected by, by all of that stuff. So, um, 
and I, I do think that's the heart of yoga. I really do. That you know, the, being able to be centered in an internal place. So, so that said, um, Kundalini. Uh, well, Abhinava Gupta, uh, and his his lineage master. He, his, I think he was his, you know, at several generations earlier. Um, taught that there are, that Kundalini is the Shakti that that manifests the Big Bang. It's the it's a name for the primordial creative energy of the universe, which which is you know microcosmic. It's vastly bigger than us. And the teaching is, and I this is very hard to grasp unless you've had the experience. It's just like whatever. <laughs> the the teaching is that this this cosmic energy at the end of the process of creation, it takes seat in a human being as our life force energy, our prana shakti, really. And it's generally said to be you know, at, this, at the muladhara chakra at the base of the spine. Well, the Kashmir Shaivites said, actually, there are three forms of kundalini. There's what they call prana kundalini, which is that the kundalini that's at the base of the spine and that wakes up you know, often dramatically sometimes through hatha yoga practices and starts moving in the central channel and you know doing all sorts of stuff in your physical and subtle bodies and we can go into that in a minute if you want to but there's also what they call chit kundalini which is located located in the heart chit means consciousness you know it means awareness so it's it's the aspect of the shakti that when it is awakened it transforms your priorities. It transforms the way you see yourself, and it happens naturally. It's not like it's like it, it's the awakening of Chit Kundalini. I believe that makes us want to do spiritual practice in the first place. You know, that makes us able to love other people in a you know in a way that's in an unselfish way. It you know, and it it's not necessarily a big dramatic thing where you see lights and energy flows through your body. Uh, it's you know, it's actually it's a very subtle transformation of your life force so that your mind can begin to turn inside. And that, that was the kind of awakening I had. I never had that kundalini at the base of the spine thing. Um, though, you know, years later, I, I started doing practices to kind of bring kundalini up into the central channel because I thought it was fun and cool and interesting. But the real awakening for me was the awakening of the heart. And I, I actually think that's true for most people. Um, and the third form of kundalini is what they call samashti kundalini, which is the all-pervading energy which I've, I spoke about earlier, you know, which you can feel in each other and everywhere. So I, I think, for me, understanding that kundalini awakening was not just that dramatic thing that happens at the base of the spine. You know, it was not just the Gopi Krishna experience, but it's it's a... It's a kindling of your, um, it's, a, it's a transformation of your life priorities. Uh, and, you know, it's, you know, in the, in the, um, in some of the Buddhist traditions and in the Neo-Vedantic traditions and the people, you know, the, among the people who look to Ramana Maharshi as their core teacher, the understanding of awakening is that you awaken to the fact that that you're, you know, you're not the body, you're not the personality, you, you, know, you are all-pervading consciousness. I consider this an awakening of Chit Kundalini. 
you know, it's a, it's a dramatic form. Because you can't get there on your own. In other words, it doesn't matter how much you meditate on the witness. You're not going to have that transformative moment when you actually experience as a realization, I am not who I thought I was. I am consciousness. I am consciousness and bliss. Nobody can do that on their own. You have to have grace for it. You have to have, I wouldn't say the permission. It, it, it comes from another level of reality. And that's what Kundalini is. It's that level of reality that enables us to wake up to our true nature. And of course, it has many other effects as well. If you're a yoga teacher or wellness professional who's thinking about building a website, teaching online classes, creating a course, or starting a membership community, I have an invaluable resource to share with you. Offering Tree is an affordable, all-in-one platform that makes it easy to streamline your offerings, scale your business, and communicate with your community. You can use it to build a website, take payments, manage your schedule, send emails, and you can go much, much further with it. With Offering Tree, you can host in-person and online events, classes, and appointments. You can take online registrations and payments, send automatic confirmation and reminder emails, offer discounts, tiered and donation-based pricing, create engaging digital content, video libraries, courses, challenges, and coaching programs for your students or clients anywhere, at any time, all from one system that has excellent customer service when you need it. Offering Tree provides all the administrative management resources that you need for your wellness business so you can spend more time with your clients, doing what you love and find inspiring, and less time fiddling with technology. To learn more about Offering Tree and to take advantage of a special discounted price, visit OfferingTree.com slash yoga room or click the link in the show notes and you'll get 50% off for your first three months or 15% off an annual plan. Again, visit OfferingTree.com slash yoga room to grow your business and to support this show. OfferingTree.com slash yoga room. You you and I, as in we, were sitting one day on a beach. This was about eight or ten years ago, um, based at the Carmel River there. And there was this sudden eruption of energy um you might recall there were these this crazy sort of agitation in the water it was a pot or two or three of dolphins and then birds flying crazily in every direction at the same time the wind stirring um and you just said prana and then shakti was like and where i'm going with this is that there was this really powerful energy manifest in our midst right there. And I think it was also not just external, if you will, but internal. There was a feeling yes. of something that awakens within as we are within all of what we are within. And where I go with this is just the idea of, um, well, grace, it seems to me, is something that is always within us, pregnant with possible the possibility that... I mean, in my sense, it's not that anyone is sort of chosen or by virtue of their um, genealogy, their place, uh, their ritta, uh, or something else that they are somehow allowed to have this. I find it sometimes a little disturbing, certain transliterations of the Gita, for example, 
uh, one's dharma is said to be rooted in niritta, their place. And what is how is place most defined? Well, are you a woman or a man? By binary definitions here, but let's just say that's one element of it. And another is, what is your caste? And people don't generally want to talk about this in the yoga realm. <laughs> that, but, but, you know, to start with, you know, if you are not a man and you are not of a certain caste, well, whatever your caste is, this is going to very much set forth for you what the possibilities are for you in your life. Um, I'm not so comfortable with those ideas. I'm much more comfortable with the idea that every one of the sort of nearly 8 billion of us have an equal capacity for qualities of awakening, of being in the bliss and the consciousness of it all. Is that anyone has that capacity? Our life circumstances certainly are a factor in how we come to this. And things like fear, things like confusion, mental disturbance, trauma can keep us boxed up, bottled up inside so far from, so lost, yeah. so lost. We have so many people in the world today, and sometimes we ourselves might find, have a sense that we are lost. So just this idea that sort of the, that one must have, that to have the grace, like, you know, and, and some would have it, that indeed you must be chosen to have that. Um, I want to explore that a little bit. Sure. I Yeah, I, I mean... First of all, that idea of caste, you know, that's in the Gita, that, that whole social structure that's in the Gita, it's so pre-modern, you know, it's, and, and we're post-modern. I mean, we have, we have really evolved as a culture, you know, since, since that time, and it's really important to recognize that, that, you know, to take the best and leave the rest, so to speak. And in terms of Dharma, um, I'm just about to give a course in Dharma. I think it's more useful to look at dharma as, you know, temperament, as having to do with your life skills and your predilections and, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that, rather than mm-hmm. because, because, you know, there's so much social mobility in this world, um, you know, and we're making such enormous strides in recognizing the genuine equality of all people, uh, and and grace often shows up in horrible circumstances. I mean, I. You know, I mean, for instance, the 12-step movement, which is all based on you cannot lose your addiction without the help of a higher power, is essentially a grace-based, a grace-based movement. And I think the issue of chosen, which is very confusing, and I can't claim to understand it because it's, it's, a, it's a huge mystery. It's, you know, so much of it has to do with the mystery of karma. The thing that, that the, the, the tantrikas, that Abhinavagupta specifically, says is that because it's, you know, there's only one substance in this universe and all of us are made of that and we're all on a journey which will eventually bring us to the point where we realize the truth about ourselves, that the fact that it happens for you in this lifetime and for somebody else three lifetimes from now um, is just a fact of karma. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not discrimination. It's not choosing one person over another. It's Shakti herself, who has become all this, deciding to wake up as Mark, you know, or deciding to wake up as Sally. And that's a very hard thing to grasp. Uh, and, you know, without having, having had an experience of what non-duality really means. Uh, but Abhinavagupta, who was hardcore about this, used to say that, that there is nothing you can do 
to to attract grace. Um, my friend Douglas Brooks, who's a very mm-hmm. good at uh, sound bites, says grace is grace. You can't deserve it. You can't pay it back, and you can't give it back. <laughs> it's like it's it's a free gift. You you know we there's nothing we can do to earn it. And that's what Abhinava Gupta said. He said all these other traditions tell you that if you if you're a good person, if you do blah blah blah, if you do the right things, then there will be grace and. He said, no, grace is a complete gift. And I, I hate to say this about the great master of Tantra. I think he's partially right about this and partially wrong because clearly when we do a lot of practice and when we work on ourselves um, and, you know, and when we have a lot of conviction and intention, help comes. That's just part of how life is. So in a certain sense, it's, it's not that we are chosen or not chosen. Um, it's, you know, grace is a gift, and also there are things we can do to open to it. You know, it's like, it's it's like, what is it that, anyway, we all know this. I think it's Jack Kornfield who says, realization, you know, just comes on its own, but we can we can become appropriate vessels. And I would say from my own experience, and maybe you've had the same experiences, that I've had enormous peak experiences over the course of my of my life. I mean, just radical experiences of non-duality. And when I first started having those experiences, I couldn't hold on to them. You know, I mean, it, it would last for a, a few minutes or a day, but then I would be back in my ordinary state because I hadn't done the practice. That to allow me to create a container or a vessel for it, so grace comes through all these, as all these broken vessels, you know, which is what we are—we're we're broken vessels for the light, you know. So it's not—I don't think that some people are chosen, some people are not. I think it's that that everybody is chosen, and and the more we take our our part of the deal seriously, the the better the chances are that when it when and if it does come, we can actually use it, hold on to it, not mm-hmm. just go, oh, that was cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know? So um, is that is that beautiful I mean, is there Look, more to say about this? I mean there's a lot. I, know, I like to stuff. share that yeah. let's just say a sense of non duality I've and I listen to others sharing their experiences in life and the world. Um Let's say that um, for some, they come to certain senses of of um, consciousness in meditation, like in right. in a formal sense of meditation. Maybe they're sitting and using a mantra or something else. I have other friends, uh, and, and also in my own life experience, I found there have been moments just well, I, I just in nature, just in doing something in the world, just in nature, and it might sound altogether terribly mundane. But in my garden, you know, pulling weeds or something. But it, more likely, in some experience in nature where something is like, let's just say, truly awesome, to use an overused word, especially here in California, awesome. Mm-hmm. But truly of awe, filled yeah. with awe, uh, and there's something there, and an experience where one might not have any sense of having a spiritual life, of having any sense of omniscience, omnipotence, or any other kind of notions of what, you know, beings or consciousness or whatever that might be about, but just in in it, just, and or, and or, um, in 
the beauty of of love of connection of of connection not of isolation but of connection and of absolutely just present fully present connected interconnected blissful interaction with something whether that's you know iteros and not necessarily sexualized at all not necessarily sexualized but just preciously awake uh, and 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 transcendent, but in connection with someone else, um, something that I have the sense, the experience that one can have. Anyone really can open themselves to that by allowing that. Um, by the way, another not to go too far with this necessarily that many experience that many people have had. I had initially when I was about sixteen years old was the sort of the, the quick path as Ramdas once described, well, he just describes it in Be Here Now, um, with psychedelics, frankly. Uh, one of my first earliest experiences of, uh, well, my, my early passion for Eastern philosophy and yoga t- occurred in the wake of having had some experiences with psychedelics in the desert, in the Antelope, in, in Mojave Desert, um, where uh, I had a sense of, wow. And it wasn't about partying with this substance. It was like, wow. I just had a sense of something that you know, I came up in a spiritual family with religion, with religion. I had never had this sense of, of something that made me wonder, wow, well, what is this deep dive into Eastern philosophy that brought me to yoga initially in my at 16. But um, where I'm going with this is that just those kinds of things, whether it's psychedelics, whether it's a sense of just beautiful connection with another human being, whether it is being in nature, skiing down a slope on one surfboard, walking on the beach, whatever it is, life experience in these precious, in these kinds of moments seems to allow for what I've gathered just about anyone to have that grace. I completely agree with you. I completely agree. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think grace is just part of the fabric of things. I mean, to get metaphysical about it, you know, in mm-hmm. Kashmir Shaivism, they say that the divine does three actions, creating things, sustaining them for a while, and then dissolving them. It also conceals itself in the universe, and it it gives grace. In other words, it, it and the, what they're talking about is the revelation of the sacred nature of the world. So, yeah, it's like baked into the cosmos. We all So we have, have Brahma, Shiva, and Vishnu there in a certain way as well. We as have well, Brahma, Shiva, Vishnu, yes. To yes. be clear to our listeners, it's, you know, Brahma, the creator, and, um, and uh, Shiva, in part, the destroyer, and Vishnu, the sustainer. Yeah. So with their and, consorts. Yes, and their consorts. And, and if you think about it, if you look at, that, at this, you see this is going on in every single sphere of life. You're in your mind, hmm. in the seasons. So things are always being manifested new, sustained for a while, and then (coughs) passing away. And In one's practice, to be sure. In one's practice, to be sure. In one's life, you know, Mm -hmm. in one's career, in one's relationships, you know, in one's one's mental. So those are are the normal, let's call them the exoteric aspects of cosmos. But it has these esoteric aspects, one of which – in one of which is that the whole process is veiled. We can't see mm. it. We can't mm. see, you know, like um, Master Eckhart says, the, work, the workman is hidden in the workshop. Mm. You know, it's, it's, mm. it, we can't see the, the sacred energy at the heart of things. 
And that and in the in the tantric definition of grace, grace is what opens your eyes to that. You know, so as as you were just explaining. And it's always available because it's always everywhere. And I I the question of why everyone doesn't experience it or why some people you know, Ken Wilber very brilliantly, you know, who who I think has helped us make sense of a lot of these mysteries. Um, Ken Wilber, you know, says very famously, you maybe you see something exquisite in meditation or while walking by the ocean, and if you're a Christian, you will tend to think, oh, this was this was a gift of Jesus, or if you're a Hindu, you would maybe ascribe it to the grace of Krishna, but you're gonna the you know the the spin you put on it is going to have to do with your culture, with your religion, with your belief system, but the experience is a natural, normal human experience mm. because we we carry that inside us, all of us. I suppose what I most appreciate about Ken Wilbur is recognizing that there is there are these ideas, there are these these impulses, this sense of of a great grand story or narrative that that we that was cl more clearly manifest in the pre-modern time that we see in that ancient literature of every, let's say, religion and culture. It's there in some ways. And so much of it gets washed away in the modern era. But in the modern era, we also get some pretty cool things like rationality mm -hmm. and a sense of human rights, uh, a sense of, 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 of a variety of other aspects of life that seem to me to be pretty important. Justice. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, fair play. Yes. And then we also get in the postmodern realm – uh, the sort of Derridaian notion of of uh, everything context matters is and is, is supremely important and indeed without context and nothing has any any meaning and 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 this leads to the kind of a denuding of it all and so what I like about one of the things I appreciate about Ken Wilber's thinking or genius that he is um, is that. Well, the integral aspect, the integration of these of these yeah. qualities, um, that they each bring something to the wholeness of it all. Before I lose this, Sally, I'd like to circle back a little bit around, no pun intended, to chakras. Um, <laughs> and just and, and because I also know that you've tapped into depth psychology and other aspects of understanding what's happening in our being, in our lives. I've always been fascinated by and played a little bit with the way that Carl Jung played around in the 1930s. He has a series of lectures, but we also know that it was in his clinical practice where he would bring someone to a conversation around, let's say, so how do you come to matters of like taking care of yourself in life? Like, you know, how pays the rent? How do you have food and shelter? And and so sort of getting at what we might think of as grounding issues, well, muladhara issues. And so like, well, how do you come to these matters of grounding in your life? How do you come to these matters? Are you so grounded that you can't move? Are you so grounded that you can't take a holiday? Or, or are you so ungrounded that you're floating around the, the planet like a butterfly in the wind and not taking responsibility for you know, who manages the checkbook in your home? How do you come to matters of finances in your life? And so reflecting on the emotional aspect, the emotional dimension of how one comes to these matters of Muladhara Chakra, then also gives clues about what's happening a little farther up, like say Zvadasthana Chakra. How do you come to matters of, sex, of, of, um, of creativity? How do you come to matters of sexuality in your life? Well, for some clues, go back down there to Muladhara, but we can also look here specifically at this realm of your experiences in life, Manapura Chakra, 
How do you come to matters of willfulness, of volition in your life? Is your fire burning so hot in that belly that you just are so aggressive in your life that you burn your path over everybody else? You might think of Dick Cheney or something or about maybe somebody else. I don't know. Or is your fire so dim that people trample over you? You can't assert yourself. You can't express what you wish or what you need. So anyway, I've – and on and on from there, you know, heart and other chakras. But curious about your sense of taking that not necessarily Jungian kind of approach, but those kind of more practical ways of relating to chakras as, as prisms through which to look at one's life and how we come to very practical matters in our life, including the practical matter of the heart of love on a higher and everything else. Yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, I'm a bit of an agnostic on the subject of Jung's psychological view of the chakras. I mean, it certainly makes a lot of sense. Um, I, have, I have been more interested in the esoteric aspects of the chakras. Mm -hmm. So, I, and I figure that people like Anadea Judith do a very good job, you know, of, of working with the, with the chakras in such a way as to make them relevant to our psychological life. So I don't really have a, I don't have a strong position on it. Um, for some reason, I've, I've always been a little bit skeptical of the ascension view of spirituality. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that, the, that the lower chakras are about your so-called ordinary worldly life and that the higher chakras are about the esoteric life. I, I don't, I think that it's much broader than that. And, and you know, if you, if you don't buy the fact that the idea that spirituality is about rising from, you know, from the earth worldly matters up to the subtle, um, which of course it is, but, but it is and it isn't. You know, that because there's, you know, the earth itself, the Muladhara Chakra, the lower body, is filled with spiritual centers and powers and capacities that aren't, uh, that aren't, you know, less spiritual than the capacities in the higher centers. I don't know, that, I don't think we really understand all that as, as, uh, as we will come to in, you know, in years to come, because I think there's a, been a, there's a tremendous amount of work going on as to what it means to ground your spirituality in the body, you know, and what it means to, to include social act activism in your, in your inner life. You know, we, we just have a much broader view of what, of I love what, it. yeah. So, I, and I think Jung, Jung, Jung got it. Uh, I think he makes it too simplistic. You know, it's, it's interesting and useful and helpful for sure. I'm, um, I'm, I'm with you. And, um, and I especially uh, appreciate the idea of, of, of more sort of an expansive concept to be sure. Um, that we that we do indeed connect it to our social lives and to our relationships in the world. Um, it's interesting that you know, well known now is that the idea of say seven chakras and in particular 
uh, particular definitions and notion of spiritual centers in the particular places that they might be is something that becomes popularized through the work of or, or Arthur Avalon's uh, right. The Serpent Power, Sir John Woodruff writing under the pen name of, of Arthur Avalon, that until that book becomes sort of hegemonic in the notions of, 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 uh, of, the, of, of subtle energy and chakras, um, we're looking at the historical literature, we find lots of different numbers of chakras, not just yeah. seven predominant ones. Sometimes it's four, sometimes it's nine, sometimes there's not one. Sometimes Sahasrara is contained within what we think what we think of as the corporeal body inside of the skull and others have it out you know, a few inches above and some have it much farther away. Um, in some renditions, we have two principal nadis, Ida, Shishumna, Pengala doesn't exist, um, etc. And it's vast, that is that diversity vast in the literature, historical ancient literature of yoga. Um, and so it's always interesting to me that we've so, somehow arrived at at seven uh, numbers yeah. of nadis. Some say it's exactly 72,000. I said, it's not 71,223. Yeah, really? How about 720 million? That's another view. Indeed. So where I want to go, another piece of this that you intimated is, um, is about embodiment. Uh, I am intrigued by in a, large, large, a lot of the work really in the late 19th, but really taken off in the 20th century, the realm of what someone referred to as somatics, um, mm-hmm. the early work of William James, of uh, Mabel Todd, her book, The Thinking Body, um, Reich's work, Reich's work in trying to get at sort of an emotional geography of the body and his clinical practice, recognizing patterns between certain kinds of psychological conditions and certain kinds of physical conditions that, you know, uh, and, and very and developing a fairly specific emotional geography that some I think Stanley Kellerman writes a book Emotional Anatomy that gives great specificity to this. So where I go with this is a, another kind of a point about the question about this or point for to converse about is let's say Alan Finger uh, a, 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 a integrated system of Tantra Hatha and Ayurveda Ishta Yoga writes a book, Chakra Yoga. He co-writes it uh, with another person. I don't recall the co-author's name. And he gives specific locations for every chakra, specific associations with specific nerve plexuses and glands, and then specific right. postural practices with which to stimulate these in various ways. Right. Go to Johar, go to Harisha Johari's book, Chakras, and he says, they have no physical location. They have no association with glands, you know, et cetera. Um, yeah. And the colors are different. And the colors are different. They don't do that rainbow thing. <laughs> right. So, exactly. <laughs> and so it's like, uh, hello, where where are we here? I mean, part of what I think it's always important for us to appreciate, and something Douglas Brooks really, really brought to life for me in a simple sheet of paper that I have. I'm not even sure where I got it. But I think it was a handout in one of his religious studies uh, courses at Harvard. Um, it was about reading Indian traditions. And to, first of all, just appreciate that everything that we read has been translated. And in those translations, those transliterations, there's subjectivity that's at play. And various things are highlighted and some are not. Read 20 different transliterations of the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. Take a a concept like a Niyama, like Saucha. Uh, purity. Well, read about it in Satchitananda compared to Pandit Tagunyat, compared to Desikachar, compared to, compared to, and we get different renditions of this. And so again, coming back around to chakras, just a vast buffet of possibilities that I suppose that one can tap into and find what tastes right for them. And in a certain way, I want to be kind of an insistent scholar and say, well, I want to know the truth, the empirical reality here. On another level, I want to say, 
what allows you to have a better life, to live more joyful life? I think those that that what's really real matters in having that we aren't living lives that are purely matters of fantasy to have that better life. Right. Um, but the play of these <laughs> to, to try to get closer, like what, what are we talking about and how important is it to have say, you know, empirical evidence in contrast to what works for you. And if one wishes to have a field day with their ideas and put out whatever they want, we might call them alternative facts. Um, I suppose we could, I'm just not sure how far I'm willing to go without like raising a hand and as I'm doing in this podcast with a variety of, on a variety of topics and saying, wait a second, where's that idea coming from and on what, you know, is it valid? So Douglas Brooks, really good on not just where does it come from, but appreciating that in those ancient texts that there's this kind of almost intellectual combat going on, that you put things out there with the expectation that someone's going to react to it, that commentary is a part of it all. That the Yoga yeah. Sutra is written with the anticipation, in some ways, of what becomes Vyasa's commentary on the Yoga Sutra, Patanjali, and so it goes from there. That everything is written is re- is commenting on something else that came before, That's right. as and the in, Sutra is in, doing in dialogue. Yeah. In dialogue, yeah. And and here's another possibility. Sorry to go here, but no, oh, please. Um, there's also the possibility that it is all imagination. I mean, if you go to hardcore Vedanta or Shaivism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the fundamental teaching is that everything is a construction of the imagination. This entire world is in God's imagination. And we are making, you know, what we see is, and how we interpret it is, to a large extent, imagination. And I want to give you an example with the chakras, because, mm-hmm, you know, I'd, I love doing esoteric practices, so I, I do it for fun. And I do a lot of, ch- of chakra practice. Uh, and... I've always done chakra practice with the understanding that the central channel, Sushumna Nadi, is in the center of the body, you know, um, running along the spinal column but not inside it. So, so when I do Sushumna Nadi practice, I, what I try to do is is open the central channel and meditate inside it. Which there are various techniques for doing that, which we won't talk about right now. Mm-hmm. So, a couple of months ago, I read a a book by somebody who said, well, Kundalini rises through the central channel inside the spinal column. So I went, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if this is true. <laughs> you know, I've okay. always had a hard time getting into the spinal column, but, you know, or at least I did 30 years ago. Now I seem to be uh, more practiced in doing this kind of thing. So I began doing meditations you know, flowing with a mantra from the muladhara up to the heart and then up to the sahasra, really staying inside the central channel, of, I mean, inside the spinal column. And because I have kind of intense scoliosis, it involved actually feeling into the anatomy mm-hmm. of my spine mm-hmm. and following the curvature of the spine. And I discovered it can be done. And it's, it's, um, it's a powerful practice. I still feel that for me, at least, it's more powerful letting it be a channel, you know, in the in the middle, bo- in the central body, and that's kind of how Sri Vidya Tantra sees it. But my point is that you can make you can you can find a chakra in many many places. You can find the chakra in the spine. You can find the chakra in the area. You know, I'm just talking about the heart in the in the area uh, 
in the front body and the middle body. Same with the Ajna. You know, you, you can you can experience the Ajna, which is what I how I do it in the center of the head, or you can experience it here on the forehead. And and you actually, if you're practicing with that awareness, you're going to have an experience of it wherever you're conceiving it. And uh, this has all this has made and you know I. I have become a fairly experienced practitioner of the inner yoga. It's, it's you know, for the, about 20 years, it's been pretty easy for me to, to go into the, which, it, believe me, it wasn't for a long time. <laughs> but I, I, what I've seen is that you can open up a field of inner experience in many parts of the system, and you, you can find someone to agree with you. But as you said, they don't all agree with each other. And um, my... I think that's okay. I think it's okay, too. But, uh, but it leads to this question, which is, mm-hmm. how much of our experience of life, especially of the inner life, is happening on the level of imagination or is happening, mm-hmm. on, the, is happening on the level of consciousness creating something within itself? And you know the Yoga Vashista or many of the other texts of Vedanta would say absolutely, you know it's all in the mind. The state of your mind is the state of your world. There, uh, there's one one end of the continuum of, of contemporary neuroscience that that has that there. Churchland's work yeah. on the brain certainly. Well, she doesn't go quite to that point, but no less has the brain and the neuronal interactions within the brain within the mind there as the source of consciousness and as the source of everything that occurs in our lives. Now she doesn't reduce it to neurons bouncing off of neurons as to whether you're going to say kick a ball or make, you know, uh, a certain meal for yourself rather than another, that there's volition that occurs within there, but that no less um, the realm of consciousness, something that, that we, she will suggest we do construct, construct within our, our the brains, our mind but, but manifests the-, the world. And this is imagination. But this, but this teaching is not about the brain. It's about that. It's about mind, which is yes. which exists independent of the brain. You know, and and I know there's this is a this is a big conversation, and let's not go into it. I, I'm with you. It's a question yeah. also of well, essentially of well, a view of, of, of the world that's one of Samkhya philosophy, which starts exactly. with consciousness and of, exactly. of Purusha and as pure consciousness, and then I, becomes I, manifest through a tattva, it, which gives us manat, that if mind. Pra- if pra- if consciousness is prior to matter, then then mind, though it acts through the brain, is prior to the brain. I'm yeah, looking so, forward to having a subsequent conversation with you about those those very questions. I would love to go, dive love yeah, this topic. Yeah. I want to play with something else. So, kind of relating to what you just said a moment ago, that is how you enjoy playing with the esoteric practices. I do as well, and exploring just different tastes, different sensitivities within the practice. The newest. I say central mantra in all my teaching, my classes, including, again, mostly asana-oriented classes, is as a student asks me something or has a sense of something, I say, play with it. Explore it. Play with it. See see what might be there for you. Uh, In some of the writings, we have, you know, the idea that every place that nadis, energy channels, cross, that there's a chakra. And if where those nadis cross, that chakra is not in consciousness. The energy gets stuck. 
I, in, in teaching a class, I might say, suggest to a student how in every different experience, in every asana, let's say, in every moment in every asana, we have certain sensations that come to us. And let's say a certain twist will stimulate some sensation that's very different than, say, a forward bend or a back bend, or a different forward bend in a different moment will stimulate a different sensation. We have certain experiences in our body, and especially sometimes working with people who are, let's say, not in their body or right. new to practice or something. You might say, try to do this. Move your little toe in that way or something. And they're like, huh? They don't quite get it. That is, that little toe is somehow removed from their consciousness. Ten years yes. later, they might yes. be able to move the toe. Right. So there's this idea where as we are practicing, doing, I'm suggesting here, postural practice and right. breathing consciously. And these are all three central concepts in this. Consciousness, breathing, experience in the body, embodied consciousness. It's also about somatic yoga, if you will. The idea is, as you are feeling something in there, breathe into it. There's, when the, a teacher first told me to breathe into my hip, I thought, what a crazy idea. I breathe okay. into my nostrils, my mouth. Sometimes I try to breathe through my ears. It doesn't work. Breathe into my hip? Are you crazy? So, But with practice, we might get a sense at the level of visualization, if nothing else, that as we're drawing breath in, that we're breathing as though into that hip, wherever you're feeling the one's tension in one's body to put your attention and then breathing in, in that form, maybe backing off of it a bit, just allow the breath to get in there. Puraka, the breath flowing in. And then as the breath is flowing out, you might explore moving a little bit more in what way you're intending, feeling through interoception, perhaps. And there's a sense of, well, we're chakra. The breath doesn't just flow out, but that energy that flows more through you. But differently, breath by conscious breath, by virtue of where we put the breath in there, through those channels, if you will, right. we bring these stucknesses, this congestion, trauma, whatever it is, to consciousness. We bring in the light. And breath by conscious breath, those chakras, if you will, open up. That energy more diffuses through us. We can breathe, as some Chinese adept said, all the way down into our toes. We can feel every cell, little by little, with practice, with cultivation. Every cell of our available being, I'll say in some ways neurologically available, peripheral nervous system available, comes to, to our ability for, for consciousness in it, but that we can feel everywhere and everything. And by, able, by virtue of being able to feel everything everywhere, to say awaken everything everywhere, we can also relax everything everywhere. How would you know how to relax your little toe if you can't feel your little toe? How would you know to relax a particular muscle in your leg or wherever it is, your hand, or your shoulder, if you can't feel it? So I'm going with this with the idea of bringing imagination and visualization into the most popular kinds of practices of yoga today around the world, which are pop postural practices, right. trying to relate them to this idea of waking, of waking up. And that waking, I'm getting at this level is a, is a, is a called a junior level of awakening. It's, it, it's at a certain level of embodied experience of embodied awakening that might, I think I find at least contributes to a larger awakening to a sense of, being in the whole of it all, yeah. that not relieving our senses of the distractions, but opening our senses to everything we can tap into within and without opening into this sort of wholeness of it all. I, I know I just said a lot there in about seven minutes. I'm not, I'm not looking at the clock, but um, just curious about your reaction to what I'm just rambling on about there. 
Well, I, I agree with you that somatic awakening is tremendously important. And I was just thinking back to back in my mid-20s um, when I was very unhappy and confused and, you know, having to make some choices I didn't know how to make. Being with a therapist, she was a Jungian actually, and having her just, she, you know, having me, she had me lie down on her couch and do diaphragmatic breathing for 10 minutes. Mm. And at the end of that, my mind was clear, I mm. was relaxed, the enti my entire perspective on my life had changed. And, you know, I, I think that, that guided breath work is in one of the most transformative practices available. And what you're saying about learning how to bring the breath into the body, it's gonna, it's gonna awaken you not only physically, it's gonna awaken your consciousness on many, many levels. And I, I would say the body is one of the, you know, we have human bodies. It's a door, it's the door, you know, that we've been given for entering into the deeper mm -hmm. realms of ourselves, and if we ignore it, if we try to, if we try to bypass it, uh, you know, we're we're just going to end up confused and sick and, uh, you know, unconnected. So I just, I think it's tremendously important, and um, and it and it's not hierarchical. I mean, the body is not less than the mind or less than the soul. It's part of the whole complex of what we are. You know, we are body, mind, heart, spirit, mm -hmm. and Beautiful. and uh, and they all they all need to be cultivated. And and it's and I, at least in my experience, these things come online when we're ready for them. You know, so so many people start out doing yoga for stress relief or because it seems like a cool way of getting exercise, and and then over the course of time. They le they learn to go into the body as you're talking as you're saying, and and then all the other aspects of yoga, if you're properly taught, are going to come online. You know, or for somebody like me, I went into it through the emotional heart. You know, through um, through affect, through love, and eventually ended up, you know, in the body. So it's I think it I think it doesn't matter what your entrance is. As long as you walk through the doors when they present themselves. Beautiful. Indeed, I find, again, like uh, a full or a full circle here is, you know, people come to yoga for so many different reasons. Some are coming into a yoga class because they, they, they heard it's the cool thing to do. It's the zeitgeist of, you know, modern society. Yoga's mat over your shoulder, walking, you know, getting your smoothie, going to class, etc. For others, it's a, a way of having social connection, of meeting people. For some, it's physical fitness. For some, it's very much about dealing with stress or physical therapy. They have injuries. They have this and that. For many people, and this seems to be a common thread, if we really peel a lot of things away, somewhere in there, this is way back in the ancient literature and all in practices, there's a sense of like something's awry. There's some suffering. There's like things aren't quite adding up or feeling just right. And they have a sense, especially, well, in many yoga classes that, it made something better. How do we know? Well, they come back. And it's usually not masochistic. They aren't usually coming back to hurt more. They're coming back because it felt there was something affirming. Yeah. And in some ways, I want to say, I don't care what it is that's affirming. That just simply being in it, that you're likely to come more to something that's going to be beneficial for you, for other people in your life, for the world, I suppose. I just wonder, in tying things together a bit here, where... You're talking with someone who might be, whether they're relatively new to yoga or in it for a long time, and 
and they might even feel they're at a plateau or there's some stuckness in their life. Where do they, where do you suggest they might go? I mean, not physically necessarily go, but like, what do you think they might explore, do? Well, I, I think it obviously depends on the person, mm-hmm. you know, so I, what happens to us at a certain point is that the practice we're, we're doing will dry up. I, I think that that's just part of the, the way it, it works. We get routinized or we get into a, you know, a, a kind of a stuck way of doing things. So what I usually tell people is experiment, try something different. You know, if, if you're, if you're doing, if you're doing asana yoga, postural yoga, try doing some Tai Chi, you know, if, if, mm-hmm. if you want to go through the body. If it's a meditation issue, um, you know, try meditate, try a different mantra or try a whole different set of practices. Let yourself experiment. I, mm-hmm. I do feel, as you were saying earlier, exploring and experimenting is actually crucial to making progress. And of course we can go, you know, we can, we can become what they call spiritually promiscuous and be trying so many different techniques that we're not really going deeply into any of them. But if you're stuck, it usually, it usually means that you, you want to look at your practice, look at where you think you're, you want to go, and then begin to consider the other avenues that might be, it might be possible to, to get there. Uh, and, and just play with it, you know, not, not with that desperate feeling, I've got to make my practice work, but like, okay, um, what would be fun? You know, what would yes. make me excited about getting to the mat? Which mm. I think is the number one thing, right, about practice. Yes, it's not always fun and exciting, but in general, you should want to be practicing. And if you don't want to be practicing, it's very hard to do it. You know, and it's it's a, you know I I had committed myself to a a particular doing a particular text chant, and the way you do it in this particular in this tradition is you commit yourself to a certain number of days. So I was doing an 80-day chant practice, and along around the 50th day, I just got completely bored with it. And so for the rest of the time I was doing it, I had to for- basically force myself to sit down. And to this day, I don't know if I would have been better off just abandoning it. I think there's something to be said for maintaining a discipline even when you don't feel like it. But um, the thing I noticed is that when I didn't want to do it, I, I would not allow myself to go deeply into the felt sense of the mantras, which, you know, which is the reason I chant. I love the, the feeling of mantras coming into my f- subtle body, uh, even my physical body. But I would just be trying to get through it. You know, and that's the thing we don't want to do. We don't want to be trying to, we don't want to be doing our practice like we did our math homework or our, depending on, you know. A lot of people would seem somewhat need a kind of, some rules, uh, yeah. a structure. At the end of Light on Yoga, BKS Yengar gives, you know, a five-year plan. <laughs> it's pretty right. specific. And, you know, for a lot of, you know, for a lot of people, that structure, <laughs> it, it works. The, it, or the 80-day plan, or if you see it very common out it there in the yoga world, you know, the 30-day challenge. Many yoga studios yeah. use them as a marketing technique and all, but, you know, the 30-day challenge, commit. And certain styles of yoga, Ashtanga Vinyasa and Bikram, that have a set structured sequence and a very tight uh, inward-looking community, uh, 
doing what they would refer to as the practice. And you're, you're, you're kind of shamed if you don't show up, you know, That's every right. day that you're supposed to show up, right? So there's this kind of like enforcement, if you will, or, or added motivation. I hope, ultimately, that people find something that's more an intrinsic source of motivation. And I think the more I experience this, of 30 or so years I've been practicing, if we can just get everyone to breathe more <laughs> deeply yeah. I, mean, I know it sounds terribly simplistic i think it is the transformative elixir at the heart of yoga that breathing really is it and um it's my you know i'm hoping to, to start a movement in which we convert every necktie in the world to yoga ties that can be used in classes to help people with you know as a prop that just to get people to breathe to loosen their collars that Absolutely. if we breathe more we feel more which can be scary i get that we want to be sensitive with respect to encouraging certain types of pranayama, for instance. But just breathing, just breathing. I think we we change ourselves, we change the world. And as you put it, I want to underline, we, we feel more. We have a sensation of what's happening within. And it's not so much, again, the external goals or rules. It's you're feeling it. And ideally, it feels good. Yes, and I, I, I think that that is the the heart of yoga is that is it feels good even if it's even if your muscles are being stretched and it's a little bit painful in the muscles something inside feels good and yeah. and i do think that's really important and I, you know i want to say i i fully understand why a discipline or a vow is important and i'm i'm very glad that i've done those kinds of things mm -hmm. all my life and i know you are too um, but it's also really important to to give yourself permission to to find the natural rhythm of the thing that you that you need in this moment, and it's not always what you've decided to do. Hmm. And I, and this this to me is it's the absolute heart of the way I teach meditation is you know. Um, Feel free to explore and experiment, <clears throat> and st but start out with something that you do every day <coughs> that you create. You know, you create for yourself the inner template of now I'm sitting from practice, and I, and when I when I say my mantras, when I create my intention, when I get in my posture, <coughs> you know, when I when I focus on what I'm focusing on, that's going to make help me make the transition from outer directed awareness to inner directed awareness and it will become automatic you know i just have to sit down and do those little protocols mm -hmm. and then what happens can arise quite naturally and spontaneously and when you know you lose it then you just come back to that original practice but you don't you don't necessarily feel bound by it mm -hmm. you don't necessarily have to go on saying that mantra through your whole meditation these are precisely the kinds of sensibilities that um, I think make you such a powerful uh, meditation teacher or guide, a facilitator, host. Um, um, so many people I know feel lucky, blessed um, in their grace to have crossed your path, whether it's directly or online through your online meditation courses and all that you do, your books. Um, I require them in my teacher trainings, have for years. And um, in my advanced trainings and others, we go more deeply into some of these. Anyway, my point is that um, I really appreciate you. And I really appreciate you, appreciate you taking some time to talk with me here as well. But I really just appreciate you, Sally Kempton. And 
Um, thank you for being here on this um, podcast with me. Um, as I always say, the end of these sessions, there's lots of links um, in the show notes where one can uh, learn a lot more about you, what you offer out in the world and all. And so I want to just really bow and say thank you very much for sharing with me here. Thank you, Mark. And I, I, I just want to say back at you, you know, I think your teaching and your the way you hold yoga is so important for so many people and certainly for me. So it's really been it's delightful to have this conversation. Thank you for listening. Please see the show notes for links and resources from today's show, as well as links to our sponsors of this episode. If you're enjoying or learning from the Yoga Room podcast, please tell your friends and others who might be interested. And you can also subscribe to the show on your favorite listening platform so you never miss anything. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple, please rate and review the show to support us in sharing healthy practices and engaging ideas from around the world. And again, thank you for joining us today. <laughs>